Hi, I'm Steve Elkins, director, cinematographer, and editor of Echoes of the Invisible. Being fearless is important for anyone who's trying to do something of the unknown. When I started to lose my eyesight, I honed myself to run across Death Valley. It's not so hard physically. What it's really hard is mentally. At CERN, we built a machine that's the size of a city. What we're looking for is the genetic code of the universe. It really changed my perspective about everything. Photographing the oldest living things. I thought, what if I retraced the route to the first human beings who, who walked out of Africa about 20,000 plus miles on foot? in a time when our ability to connect has been increasingly replaced by interactions with our screens and our devices, when we have so many reasons to be strangers to one another. We share appreciation for slowing down and seeing the invisible. I like to think about the people that came way before my own passing through their echoes are still here as well. I think whether we realize it or not, we're all on some form of pilgrimage. This whole place is chaotic, heartbreaking, maddening, beautiful, ecstatic place is yours, belongs to you. That is a trailer from the documentary Echoes of the Invisible, and this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and today we're talking about timelessness as we ponder the origins of the universe, humanity, and what it means to be one of the nearly 8 billion denizens of planet Earth. Joining us to discuss the seemingly imponderable is award-winning filmmaker Steve Elkins, the cinematographer, director, and editor of Echoes of the Invisible. We are also privileged to have two additional guests, astrophysicist Joe Incandela and Julia Payne, project manager for Paul Salopek, the journalist who's been walking the world for the past eight years. Uh, Steve, uh, Julia, and Joe, welcome to Factual America. Steve, thank you uh, for for making this film, and how are things with you? Uh, pretty good. Can't complain. It's yeah. incredibly hot in California right now, as it normally is during the summer, but uh, I'm surviving, so all is good. And the film's Echoes of the Invisible, It did it debut at South by Southwest? Uh, in quotation marks. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they they uh, canceled the physical festival, I want to say about three or four days before the actual premiere. So I was literally about to fly out the next day. I had already uh, flown out, actually. You so had. I was Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, oh. I'm UK based, but I'm, my family's from Texas. So I, I made a, ho a mini holiday of it anyway. But yeah, we were supposed to be there for. Uh, I'm amazed South you could have a holiday at all because it sounds like the city was basically shut down. Uh, well, my parents are in the hill country, so uh, yeah, it wasn't really even a holiday, to be honest, and we were quickly <laughs> trying to figure out how we were going to get back, but, uh, um, and has it been released yet? 
Uh, it has. It was just recently released on Apple TV on June 22nd in North America. Okay. Um, it's also available on a streaming platform called Altavod and also Canopy.com. That's Canopy okay. with a K, not a C. Okay. All right. Well, we'll put notes, uh, links to that on the uh, the, sh- the show notes. So uh, if you don't mind, Steve, uh, please, uh, I mean, I've mentioned their names, but I haven't done them justice, uh, certainly yet. Could you introduce our guest for us? Certainly. So we're really fortunate to have today uh, Julia Payne, who is the project manager of Paul Solopek's Out of Eden Walk. Uh, as you know, Paul is one of the the lead cast in the film, journalist mm. who's walking across the world. Um, and we also have Joe Incandela, who's a physicist from CERN, uh, who mm. led the team that uh, wound up discovering the Higgs boson at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. Okay. Well, uh, Joe, uh, you're, you're, you're our first astrophysicist on the show, and I'm, uh, I, I feel like I'm definitely not prepared for this. But uh, I, uh, I've got a, you know, you've, got, you've had great reviews, um, and which I wholeheartedly uh, concur with. Uh, here's one, uh, one great quote. Echoes have placed me somewhere beyond words, one of the most profound things I've seen. See this film, for in a time of uncertainty and fear, it puts it all into perspective. That's Steve Copian at Unseen Films. So with that in mind, uh, Steve, what is Echoes of the Invisible all about? Um, I still struggle to uh, articulate this concisely uh, because it's really not about any one particular thing. It's really about uh, a number of people's stories that are linked through some common themes. Um, uh, And I kind of want to leave it to the audience to determine what it's actually about. There's many options, Mm -hmm. but some of the common themes that are right on the surface is that I follow um, about four or five primary stories of these bold people who are going into some of the most extreme environments on earth, Mm. basically uh, to see something that otherwise would be invisible if they didn't put themselves or technology um, through these harsh environments. So I follow athletes, scientists, monks, artists, Mm. and journalists um, through these environments uh, to see how uh, in order to do all of their work, there are certain common threads that they all need in place to basically see something that would otherwise be invisible. And, and the, th- the thing is, I- any one of these could be its own doc, couldn't it? I mean... Y- yes. But you, but um, you, inter- you know, interweave them. Yeah, for better or worse, this is something I actually um, very deliberately try to do with all of my feature documentaries, is I take a whole bunch of stories that absolutely deserve their own documentaries. Yeah. Um, but what I try to do is do something you wouldn't, be able to discover if they had their own documentary, which is what ha- what kind of sparks fly off when you collide these different mm. stories together. I think there's certain thematic um, sparks that that come off um, that allow you to see things from a different perspective. Yeah, and uh, uh, I mean, so we've got. Uh, I mean, we're going to be talking about collisions here shortly. In a, I think with Joe, uh, but uh, the uh, you know uh, not to like you said you want. And we, I do highly recommend people see this. It's a, it's an amazing film. But uh, uh, we've got the guy who runs Death Valley. We've got uh, Joe and his people, certainly at CERN, uh, discovering what has been called the God Particle. We've got uh, the West Texas artist Linda Lynch, uh, Rachel Sussman, who's uh, photographs ancient living things. That, that was abs- that, all. These are amazing stories. And then we've got the. Uh, out of Eden project uh, with the, uh, I mean, is it fair enough to say that that out of Eden project kind of serves as the 
the thread that keeps that holds everything together and uh steve and then we can have julia tell us a little bit more about the out of eden project sure um i mean in my mind i tried to balance all the stories as much as possible so that no one stood out from the others but there's no question that i believe paul solopec actually has literally the most screen time um i think that if anything that's just because it took a little a little longer to say some of the things I wanted to say through his story. But, it, but mm. what I will say is that um, uh, Paul Solopec kind of came into the project fairly late in the process of making the film. And I did see both him and Rachel on their journeys as a way to make the themes of the film more clear and convey okay. what I wanted to convey more clearly. So in that sense, they are very central. But ultimately, I wanted to achieve some kind of balance between them. Okay, well, we'll do our best to try to balance uh, all the different stories that you 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 uh, bring to the big screen. Uh, and I do. Uh, I don't know when people are going to have a chance to see it on big screen. I saw it was amazing because I saw it on a, even on a fifteen inch laptop. But uh, um, I mean, Julia. So, what can you tell us about what is the Out of Eden Project? Um, and when did Paul begin this journey, and where is he at at this point? Well, thanks, Matthew and Steve um, and Joe. It's really it's so great to be here. Um, it's an honor to speak for Paul and to have seen um, and helped just a minute amount with uh, getting together some materials uh, for Steve as he made this film, which is extraordinary. And uh, I had the total privilege of seeing it, as you were just saying, on the big screen recently in California. Um, where it had a screening like you both. Uh, I was going to go to South by Southwest and, and hope to see it there. Steve, I remember being on the phone with you in the days just before um, it was canceled as we sort of puzzled that out. Um, so that was a disappointment, but it also illuminated, as we talked about Steve, some kind of surprising elements, or if you looked at them in a different way, uh, some accelerations of trends that mm. are exactly what your film is about. Um, and as you were saying, it's, it's similar to the Out of Eden Walk project in that it's a little difficult to talk about in in the um, in anything but an abstract sense because literally physically it's Paul you know Paul's walk across the planet but as Paul would put it I think that would be a misrepresentation yeah. and it's become something totally different in that it no longer and it never really did belong to Paul that's sort of actually, if this is a word in an anatomic description to him, it's really um, a, a representation about sort of uh, retracing how we became who we are today and a way of moving literally forward, you know, with your own body to look back at where we've been and try to see where we're going. Um, and then to go to a more sort of literal description out of yeah. Eden Walk um, is the nonprofit that underpins this physical journey. And uh, Paul began walking in 2013 out of Africa. And he's today in China, um, having recently left Myanmar. And he's written a beautiful uh, dispatch about that. that you can find it out of Edenwalk.org. Okay. Out of Eden, uh, out of Edenwalk.org. That's a good point. We'll put that in the show notes. Cause uh, I think I, one thing that struck me is that it's the, ultimate in long-form journalism right <laughs> you know, yeah you know. it's an experiment in in long term and long-term and long-form journalism and really it's become more of a storytelling project than anything else yeah. as as paul's covered um some almost twelve thousand miles in the past eight plus years of being on the trail and it's 
a, you know, a physical journey that doesn't have any breaks. So as he puts it, a home base are now GPS coordinates on a map and wherever he might be at that time. Um, and, and so even though we have this US-based nonprofit, there's a differentiation between Paul and, and what he's doing on the ground. And his walking partners have become a huge part of the project and of the story and of how the people that he's connecting with and the impact that slow storytelling and moving slowly and, and making connections uh, between narrative threads, just as Steve does in the film, has on them. It, it's mm -hmm. really people take ownership of this project because it resonates. And I think we're hungry for that meaning and connection in today's attention economy. Okay. Um, I mean, and Joe, um, so you've, Obviously, one of the stories that's uh, inter interwoven here is is uh, the work that you and the scientists were doing at CERN with uh, um, Higgs boson. Now, for our listeners, uh, and uh, I guess keep it as simple as we can, <laughs> um, but I think you're skilled at this. I think you were the one of the spokespeople on this. Uh, what is what? What is what, what? What happened at CERN? What has happened at CERN? What's still happening at CERN in terms of the Higgs boson or the God particle, as some have called it? And why is this so important? So, the I should say first of all that um, yeah, I'm a particle physicist. I'm not actually an astrophysicist. So, and my apologies that. for that. That's okay. That's okay. There's, there's a there's a funny story about Rutherford who said that the Nobel committee did something he could never do. And that was to turn a physicist into a chemist because he got the <laughs> Nobel prize in chemistry, but um, you've turned a, a particle physicist into an astrophysicist, which is fine. And there's actually, it's a good connection uh, and, and makes sense even in the context of the film, because uh, there were some discussions about looking back to the early universe and saying mm. how light, you know, light becomes dissociated from the, fiery um, Big Bang mess around 350,000 uh, years <clears throat> after the Big Bang. So to, to see further, you actually have to recreate what happened before that. You have to go to temperatures corresponding to the very, very early universe and, and, and study the properties of, 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 um, of interactions at the, of those really high energies. And that's what we do at CERN, actually. We, we, we collide particles together at such high energy that we're essentially reaching uh, temperatures that are you know ridiculous to even mention, but they correspond to now uh, about one trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And it's, it's a very interesting time in the history of the universe, even though it's a very brief moment after the Big Bang, because mm -hmm. the universe underwent a transition in, 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 a, in, a, in a force field we don't normally think about or see in the normal ways. The universe in some sense froze out. And what froze out was a field, a fixed field, which we call the Higgs field. And all other particles began interacting with that Higgs field um, and to different uh, varying degrees, at least all particles that now have mass. And in fact, their mass is a, a, an artifact of that interaction. So the Higgs boson was crucial to our fundamental theories to understand how come some elementary particles have mass, how any elementary particles have mass. And it's called the, the God particle because for instance, if the electron had no mass, which would be the case if there were no Higgs boson, um, then the radius of an atom would be infinite. Namely, there would be no atoms. There'd be no binding. And so we would not exist. 
Um, mm. And so the the joke is, uh, there was a joke about why it was called the the, uh, the God Particle. There was a book written by a, a former uh, colleague who passed away not too long ago, Leon Letterman, also Nobel mm. Prize winner. He said he wanted to call it the God, I don't know if I could say this online, but the God D-A, yeah, goddamn particle. But uh, <laughs> the editors wouldn't let him. And, and the reason he wanted to call it that was because it was so hard to find. Um, yeah. So it took us yeah. 50 years. It took um, some <clears throat> maybe uh, almost 10,000 scientists, uh, engineers, technicians um, to build a machine that's you know the size of a city that had to collide particles in beams many, many times. So uh, we had to look at so many collisions, in fact, to find a few hundred cases of boson production, his boson production, that if each one represented a grain of sand, each of these collisions, you would fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then the Higgs signal itself would be on the tip of your finger, a little coating of sand. So it was an amazingly difficult thing to do. It required all kinds of technologies that didn't exist when we started the project. And it was, it was an amazing feat. But now we understand something, getting back to your original question. I'm sorry I'm going yeah. so long. Yeah, no but, worries. Uh, it, it, we understand where, in some sense, the uh, where our substance comes from, you know, and it answered a question that was first posed, at least historically and, and documented by the Stoics in 2500 mm. BC. And they they proposed that there was something called the pneuma that penetrated the universe, right. a substance that penetrated the universe and gave all things substance. They were right, but they were guessing. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But but still, and, I mean, and we proved it. Yeah. And and I guess that's, I mean, as much as we're looking forward, we're also looking back. And so uh, you've got, uh, and maybe they're the astrophysicists, or at least they're astrologists. We have, you know, you do spend a lot of time, Steve, with uh, these guys and the, uh, you know, these telescopes in the most remotest parts of 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 the world. Uh, even Antarctica, I think, um, all just doing everything they can to get away from noise, um, like hermits of yore and still do, we're trying to get away from. And uh, it's all hearkening back to origins, yet that, uh, what, Joe, how long ago do we think the Big Bang was, roughly? It's uh, eight... About 13, 13.7 billion years. Yeah. So... <clears throat> And we're, you know, so it's, it's, it is all this, uh, you know, and then um, it's, it's interesting, all these, I mean, Steve, how did you find all these different stories? I mean, to, to put them together? I mean, I know you say it's part of your, the way you operate with your feature docs, but. Uh, um, yeah, it was, it was a long process that didn't really finish until I was about maybe seven, six or seven years into it that I finished figuring out everyone I would want in it. <clears throat> and I kind of danced with it as I went. But um, originally I was basically um, seeking out uh, primarily scientists, monks. Yeah. Well, actually that was it. Uh, scientists, monks and athletes at the beginning um, who were going into these extreme locations specifically because the original impetus for this whole film was, believe it or not, this very abstract juxtaposition of two images in my head that just came to me one morning. Uh, they just really struck me. One was, uh, I was remembering these technicians I had seen at the Very Large Array Telescope in New Mexico. I had just been there on a road trip. This was back in 2008. Mm -hmm. And they would basically like, um, 
lay these railroad track type things on the ground one at a time so that they could move each of these 210 ton antennas that make up the telescope up to several miles in any direction to reconfigure what they're looking at in space. And there was just something about that undertaking of laying those tracks on the ground that just struck me as remarkable. Um, and then my brain kind of jumped to thinking about these Buddhist monks that I had seen prostrating their way across the Himalayas in India a couple of years before that, um, where they take one step and then they mm. flatten themselves face first on the ground, get up, take one more step, do the same thing. And they'll do this for years uh, on a pilgrimage to the Bodhi tree uh, from wherever they live in the world, whether it's Mongolia or even further away. So um, there was something about the rhythm and the activity of laying those railroad tracks one at a time mm. for the telescope and the bowing of the monks with their bodies one at a time to look further inward. Um, so, so the process of finding people for me was a process of trying to find out what it was about the juxtaposition of those two things that uh, sparked such awe in me. Uh, it gave mm. me this very, very, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, just a very inspired feeling that I wanted to chase and try to figure out why it fascinated me so much, that juxtaposition. So, so once I uh, found like who were the scientists in the most extreme environments I could find on earth, which led me to, you know, Siberia and right. CERN of course, and um, uh, an abandoned iron mine half a mile under That's the right. earth in Minnesota, <clears throat> and lots of other places, um, also in the Himalayas in, in India, I suppose. Yeah. Then I, you know, I put all this together with the monks in Ethiopia and, um, uh, and the runner in Death Valley, but it, I yeah. felt like there was something about it that as broad as it was, it was not broad enough. The story <laughs> was just not big enough to actually convey something that's a little more global and a little more universal. So um, that's when bringing in Paul's story of his walk across the globe um, and Rachel's story of photographing the world's oldest continuously living things really tied everything together for me. And um, I sort of discovered them after realizing that it wasn't enough, my original idea. Yeah. So. Wow. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'll ask you more about this later, but I mean, how do you pitch this to <laughs> when you're trying to, I mean, you, <laughs> how does something like this even get make, made? I mean, thank God you get, did get it made, but I, I can just see execs that, I won't name names, just kind of scratching their heads when you tell them the, uh, the story idea. Absolutely. You're, you're right on the money there. And it is unpitchable. All of my films are, and fortunately I've never had to pitch them Okay. because <laughs> I don't think they'd ever get made if I did. I, I it's funny you bring this up because I joke about this a lot that I basically make unpitchable films. Um, so I've been very lucky that I've had um, basically friends and uh, colleagues of friends kind of see mm. what I'm doing and spread the word and step in. Uh, so um, they've basically been the ones to produce it. They, they see what I'm already working on on my own because I basically yeah. start it before I pitch it to anyone. All right. uh, I just work. And uh, I was lucky that the right people were paying attention and funded the rest of it. Okay. Hey, well, I think um, actually this would be a good time to just take a, uh, um, a early break uh, for our listeners and uh, we'll be right back with Steve Elkins, Joe Ancandela and Julia Payne all involved with uh, Echoes of the Invisible You're listening to Factual America Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows 
Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with award-winning filmmaker Steve Elkins, director of Echoes of the Invisible. We're also joined by Joe Incandela and Julia Payne. Uh, debuted inverted commas, as they say here at South by Southwest. Uh, you can watch it on Apple TV and a few other places, which we will put in the show notes because uh, I wrote them down, but that's on another piece of paper. But uh, um, so. Um, Again, we were talking about this film, how you make uh, uh, unpitchable films, but thank goodness someone's paying attention and uh, to what you're doing. Um, I mean, how, you, you were kind of already saying that you, you just thought you needed something else more, so the you, sort of Out of Eden got involved. But, uh, I mean, the logistics of this must be a nightmare. How do you... <laughs> Yeah, that's actually one of the main reasons it took so long to make, uh, because I was fairly clear about what I wanted to set out to do from the beginning. But just getting permission to access a lot of these regions I filmed in took very, very long. Um, I mean, the one that took the longest was uh, getting into a part of the Himalayas that's on the border of Tibet. It's Mm -hmm. actually a restricted militarized zone. And that's where the scene takes place fairly early on in the film. Mm. where uh, science writer Anil Swami talks about how he realized being in that place that mm. uh, when he saw one of the world's state-of-the-art telescopes directly across the mountain from a 400-year-old Buddhist monastery, and that right. those were the only two things in this region that, you know, he recognized that both scientists and monks need a particular kind of science, uh, silence to mm. look further outward or look further inward. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it took me about four years to get a uh, visa to go there because it's really uh, closed off to the mm. public. I mean, you, uh, how many years in total did it take you to film this? The filming took, uh, you know, on and off for about six or seven years. Okay. Um, when I say that, I wasn't filming, you know, continuously throughout that I, yes. time. It was very yeah. sporadic. But yeah. over, a, over a six or seven year span, uh, the filming took place. And then it was a couple more years of editing and fine tuning and post-production. So, and then Julia, with that filming, that we, so we have some, obviously we've got Paul uh, on camera. Is that, uh, I mean, does Paul have a team following, besides the people he's journeying with, does he have a team that's following around or is that you, uh, is, that, uh, is that what happens? Uh, I mean, he it must, and also, I mean, he does a lot of, sitting around and waiting, trying to get to, we see a little bit on the film where he's, uh, he can't leave Djibouti. He can't get a, you know, that must happen quite a bit as he's trying to cross borders. I mean, the, the film goes into details towards the end about all the, uh, trials and travails of trying to walk the world. Absolutely. It's a great question. It's actually the same question I had for Steve. And I had the first chance to ask you, put some questions, Steve, how was it for you? Um, it's, it's a repeat theme of Paul's writing and he's written almost um, he's written actually a little more than now, 400,000 words in just the online collection wow. of literary sort of reportage that's available um, on the same site out of Edenwalk.org. And that's not counting print stories that he's written along the way, um, a book that he's working on and, and almost completed. And so he's just, he's, prolific so if he's ever um sitting around he's working and uh there's going to be something that comes out of that pause that forced pause whether it's the weather um or geopolitics that is part of the story 
And I think mm. that's that's really the way he's seen it. But a repeated theme throughout these writings, I think, um, has been it's the the obstacles in walking across the world are not what you might think they are yeah. in terms of, you know, that mountain is too high to get over mm. or, you know, running out of water even. Um, the kindness of strangers really uh, makes makes that those physical and uh, climactic obstacles mm. surmountable Paul's, as Paul's seen. But what is more difficult are borders and mm. um, bureaucratic kind of wrangling and red tape and these borders that we construct. That's what makes something like this um, difficult or that's what can hold up uh, the walk more than anything else yeah. that you might, yeah. might think. But it all becomes part of the story. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think as he points out, there's in our day and time, there's no one more suspicious than the guy who's walking, it seems, but uh, right. at least to some, some people. Um, but I mean, I, I think with you being here, I mean, it's very, so there's definitely, there has to be this nonprofit. He has that sort of support, but at the same time, because um, that also answers some questions I had in my mind. I mean, you know, if you want to be extremely pedestrian, you're like, well, how does this guy afford just to walk across, yeah. across the world? But at the same time... No, I'm is, glad you asked. Yeah. And it is, it's an expensive undertaking. Um, and to to keep the sort of legacy alive is what's become important because of the people who've gotten involved, the walking partners, the education mission, our partners at National Geographic Society, mm. Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, Project Zero, um, and the latter two, our education partners, our civic engagement program at McCormick Foundation really puts the, the benefits of what he's doing in terms of slow storytelling and enjoying and rediscovering maybe just your neighborhood or your community or the world at large and your place in it through the lens of what he's doing, um, just mm -hmm. as you can sort of rediscover art and math and science and the relationship between those things through Steve's film. Um, and it, it is a nonprofit foundation that sort of keeps, or 51C3 charitable organization is the right classification that keeps that going. And that's at a different place um, to join the journey. You can go to out of nonprofit.org and, and follow along there with the, our newsletter, sign up and to donate and become part of the online community there easily. Um, but I, I want to circle back to your earlier question that I think I didn't answer, which was, does Paul walk with a team? And the answer is no. And, and you're right. Mm. The, walking person is maybe the most suspicious. He writes a great piece called uh, Car Brain in the New York Times that I go mm. back to at least once a year um, about how being in a car, we're in this isolated bubble. And so as he's walking, you know, with a walking partner and maybe a, a pack animal in the, mm. in the instance that he uses an, as an example in that story, I think it's a camel and they're walking, you know, across the, next to a highway um, in Saudi Arabia. And people are just completely bewildered, understandably. Um, but Paul writes about it beautifully and with a sense of humor, but pointing out sort of what it's done and no one can give you directions if you're walking. Um, we only think in terms of <laughs> roads and lines. And so they'll say, how do we get here? And they'll say, well, you have to take interstate, whatever. Um, but it's, it's not possible when walking. Uh, and so Paul does walk with a local person and he finds his local partners. They're, he does not call them guides, but walking partners. Um, and, you know, they, they tell the story as much as, if not more than Paul in each place. And, uh, mm. you know, he finds them in different ways. One example that I'll share that I, I really like, and then I'll be quiet, is um, Murat Yazar, who's a photographer in Turkey. Mm. And I think Paul just met him, bumped into him in town or something. And uh, 
he said, you know, Moran, I need somebody <laughs> to walk with me across Anatolia. Would you be interested in joining? As a photographer, you might find it interesting. And Murad said, okay, I'll walk with you for seven days. I think this is in the film too. And yeah. then he ended up walking with Paul for the rest of the, the journey through Turkey. And now he's still using that, a walking methodology to produce his photographs. Um, but it completely changed his life. He was with Paul right until they um, kind of stumbled over these snowy caucuses to get into the Republic mm -hmm. of Georgia where, mm -hmm. where they said goodbye. I, I think that's a, it's it's a very good point. I mean, I think your stories about uh, I I can't tell you how many times I get stories from because I hear based here in the UK people who've traveled to the US and have similar stories. They travel and they they decided because they're mostly used to living in cities in the UK. They well, if you're in a hotel, obviously you can just cross that road to. Uh, go to the TGI Fridays or wherever it is you're going and uh, invariably end up, you, there's no sidewalks, there's nothing. And the number of times that pe people say, yeah, one of the local cops pulls over and asks them, what are they doing? And they're just say, well, what, we're just trying to walk over there. And like, well, why the hell are you walking? And invariably mm -hmm. they get like a ride or a lift, you know, to get there. <laughs> but uh, it's just this mindset that we're in, I, I think. And I think I'm not trying to focus too much on Paul here, but I mean, it, what you've said also reminds me of the things he's, he has said um, about how we're n naturally more hardwired when it comes to how we, you know, in this in this year of and and a half of pandemic and many people like myself stuck in front of a screen doing zoom calls and things i mean we're not meant to be sitting down all the time we're not meant to we are meant to be absorbing the world at a uh, 3 mile an hour pace or whatever it is however we walk um joe what did you think when you were approached by uh, steve for this project um, that's a tough one to answer, but, uh, partly because at the time, <laughs> at the time I was, uh, I was leading the experiment at CERN and, um, there were, there was a lot of media interest. So I was just often asked to give interviews and, um, and so Steve, Steve came and, and did an interview with me and I didn't know what the concept of the film would, would be. Mm. Um, and, um, I, I have to say, sometimes I've been surprised to see where I show up in media because of various interviews I've done. But, but I, I found in the end that um, I found the questions he asked at that meeting at CERN were, were really uh, extremely good questions. And he really mm. probed kind of my soul as a physicist surprisingly well and where I came from and why I, why I was doing what I was doing. Mm. And uh, much of that connected to sort of this quest for timeless, uh, timelessness or a deeper understanding um, that I've had a kind of a drive to to acquire ever since I was very little, and and it was something I found really great about the film. Actually, there were mm. a couple of different themes I picked up. One was this timelessness right. um, aspect, this kind of deeper search for meaning. The other was the drive that certain individuals have to go to these extremes, mm. and um, you know, it's. Um, even in, as a scientist, which is a fairly respectable, you know, position in our society to do the kind of science we do, mm. um, it attracts some, you know, rare people in some sense, because, you know, you, you can't often even explain what you do to your family so well. Um, um, and, and, um, 
but but I I was from a very young age trying to understand what space time really was, mm. and um, tried to imagine and visualize it. And uh, so now, what I literally what we do is study the fabric of space time, mm. and and um, and it was really fun to see in the film how that juxtaposed yeah. with these other mm. uh, other characters. Yeah, I mean, did you? So you've. So, what did you think of the film, and did you ever think of yourself as being having a connection with hermetic monks? Yeah, um, <laughs> believe it or not, I, well, I love the film for many reasons. I love the fact that it that it wasn't telling you in detail what to think. I'm a little tired yeah, of the modern yeah. way of every movie you watch has a narrator because you apparently can't figure out what's going to happen and tells you exactly <laughs> what to think. And I love yeah. the fact that it didn't do that. You had to. And, and it made you, it kind of brought you into some of these quests. You know, you had to struggle mm. with the people out there trying to figure with that. So in terms of the film, I loved that the cinematography was beautiful. Yeah. The stories yeah. were fantastic. Uh, I wish I could meet the people, other people, and spend some time with them. Um, what was the other part of your question then? Um, uh, well, I guess, uh, you, yeah, and did you see oh, yourself you as... About being, yeah. Oh, compa- yeah, yeah. And, and I've often uh, felt a little bit... I mean, sometimes like a monk, um, yeah. because you have to go off for so long uh, and and try to understand and work on something. You know, there aren't many jobs people have that take them 25 years to get done, you know, to yeah. start to finish or 30 years. There's that. Um, I've often felt that connection. There's There's been a connection to art as well, which has been interesting. And I was happy to see that. Uh, talked about in the in the film mm. as well. Um, also, part of the part of art is, I think, this quest for a timeless, uh, deeper understanding of of things. And I had studied to be an artist actually from when I was six till I was eighteen, and then switched. Oh, that's right. To yeah. to yeah. physics, um, yeah. oddly enough, um, partly because I didn't know physics existed. I came from a family of artists, and then I had to take a physics course in college and discovered there's actually a field that's dealing with all these questions I've had and struggled with all my life. So yeah. that's how I made that, that shift. But um, yeah, there is a connection there. Sometimes we're, oh, the one, one thing I want to just end this and answer that question. Sometimes we are compared to cathedral builders. Right. Because yeah. many, we, well, many people put their mm-hmm. uh, time into the building of the, the Large Hadron Collider and the experiment who didn't even live to see it run. Yeah. Um, things like this. It was such a long project. I mean, I'll ask you, so I'll, I'll ask you since you bring it up and I'm, I happen to live in a city that's got one of these cathedrals you're talking about. Um, the, um, it, do we think as a, do you think as a society or humanity has just kind of lost sight of this? I mean, people used to, uh, there's a, someone else I know who says, you know, think about some of those gargoyles that were carved, sculpted at the top of those cathedrals. And those people knew no one was ever going to really see those things, not from the ground, but they still put all this time and effort and, you know, almost a, create some sort of perfection. And we are, we've become very much focused. I think somewhere in the film, uh, Steve, also it talks, I, I forget how it's put, uh, but this and which... Um, which religion was kind of being, disc- was looking at this, but this sort of almost, we've become so, in that sense, so self-centered and 
focused on what we can and see and what will be you know we're not we're not thinking i I guess we've lost sight of the bigger picture in many cases yourselves excluded obviously but uh uh, i mean what do you think joe i think i think i think there's a a hunger for that though i don't think we've lost sight of it because individuals all made the choice to do that we have we live in a society where efficiency is very important yeah. where we, we're 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 pressed to do many different things and so things become i think much more a little bit more superficial if not a lot more superficial mm. but you know i find you know uh, americans of course are famous for being this way being very focused efficient you know um but my friends who go to japan for instance immediately recognize and, and love that culture which still has many connections to a deeper appreciation of things a much more aesthetic appreciation of things um and i think all of us like that or feel a need for that and um my hope actually on a completely different subject is that in addressing climate change and sustainability Mm. for the planet we actually will revert back to some of these ancient cultures because they understood that. They understood mm-hmm. the connections. What The way I put it is this, uh, the, the world is a multidimensional space where you have to understand the connections of all those dimensions to maintain it and sustain it in a healthy state. Our modern society is kind of focused on one axis and that axis is mainly, is what I'm doing profitable? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And that, that can discount these other axes and we've yeah. discounted to some some extent the ancient civilizations that really appreciated those and actually incorporated that knowledge into their spiritualism. And so I think our path forward is a combination of those things, modern science with a return to a deeper understanding and appreciation of all these all of these different dimensions. Hmm. So I, I think our survival may depend on it actually. Yeah. Uh, not to sound too dramatic, but I, I think that's the that's the path forward, really. Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent point. And uh, not to single out any one particular culture, but one thing that resonated with me just mainly because I had a professor in grad school who was a specialist in this group was was the uh, Tuva uh, peoples that you bring into this, Steve. And and that was quite that music was quite uh, quite amazing that uh, and that they that they produce and I had forgotten about that. Um, and J- Julia, what is uh, has Paul been able to see this? And what is what's his how is what does he think of the film? Because obviously he couldn't wait till he finished his journey, otherwise we'd be have a long way to go. Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. It's going to be about um, twenty three, twenty four thousand miles. Uh, once it's complete, when he hits the tip of South America, Tierra del Fuego, yeah. some years, some years away. Um, but it's, it's great to hear Joe speak. Joe, what you were just saying, I think actually also perfectly encapsulated the walk and what mm. Paul's doing and why it resonates with so many people. And I think Steve's film made the point beautifully that it, it really doesn't matter if you're a monk or a scientist, um, an astrophysicist or a particle physicist or... Um, be a podcast host or a project manager or you know if you're working outside and uh, using your hands it's work that drives us timelessness that we're interested in in, in a way and I think timelessness and restlessness as well restlessness mm. is a you know kind of an obvious driving factor of Paul's walk um, so to start from 
the cradle of humanity and the earliest known sort of fossil site mm. in uh, Hertebori, thusly the Out of Eden walk, you know, made sense. And, and one of the things that he's walking after, one of the questions he's walking after is why did we move? Um, partly it was forced, but um, as it's shown earlier in the film, you know, a lot of theories say we didn't need to, <laughs> we didn't need to. So, yeah, so what made yeah. us go? And that's, that's sort of the question that he's following and that he's seen every, everyone that he works with and, and walks with and, um, and speaks with the people who are really uh, constituting the journey now mm. are also wondering that. And it doesn't matter what we're doing. Um, we're kind of all doing the same thing. And in seeking perfection, I think it's it's become superficial in, in to use America, I guess, as a, a specific example, you know, on social media and that type of thing. But it's the same seeking for perfection, um, I guess, I, I feel like. But we're just, we've got a different set of tools to sort of go after it. So it's sort of the same problems just that we've always dealt with. But mm. um with a new kind of packaging and uh now as joe mentioned our future will depend on can we work together to sort of untangle what we've tangled um and, and the, the problems that we've created for ourselves through this sort of arrogancy and through looking at efficiency and profit as the two mm. main uh driving mm. definitions of success or will we just continue on sort of with short-sightedness um and the sort of ephemeral mm relationship with things and ourselves and i guess that's sort of what we'll see in the next few generations yeah well or, or can't even wait it that long actually can we i mean we need to it needs to it needs, yeah i mean I, I i was we had a different guest on i forget what the subject was but uh i, I said i used to say uh i used to i've got teenagers and i'd tell them you you got it's your generation that's going to save save the planet and then now realizing that Actually, we can't wait for, for them uh, to start saving the planet. We need to. Well, we should have gotten started a, a while back. But uh, um, I mean, Steve, what I wanted to also ask you about is because uh, Joe's brought it up, and I think uh, Julie's mentioned as well. But the the something we haven't really talked on too much is is the art side of this. I mean, there is this very artistic element. You capture it, there's art through your cinematography. Uh, but there's also the art that we, uh, I forget, uh, is it Rachel Sussman's the photographer, and we also have the um, the different, uh, the sand paintings and things like that. It's just, uh, um, and would you agree with Joe's point? I mean, it's just sort of the art, how the art fits in with all this as, as well. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, all these paths, whether they're art or journalism or science or uh, spirituality. I mean, they're all ways to access these things we're talking about, a sense of timelessness, a sense of what actually drives us as human beings, what has made us who we are, how do we become who we are. Um, so yeah, um, and for me, you know, I, I've been an artist my whole life in some capacity or other. Um, I wish I had studied um, sculpture and glass blowing, like Joe, that's something we didn't get into specifically, <laughs> but that's, those are just incredible mediums. Uh, Joe actually yeah. studied with Mel Chaluli, if I recall right. Is that right, Joe? I actually didn't, but I, I, I had to make a choice at one point between becoming a, a, going into science or going to Pilchuck and working with and studying with Chaluli, and I chose science. Wow. So, Got it. and that was when he was just starting. So it could yeah. have been an interesting path, but I'm actually pretty happy with the way I went. 
<laughs> I think it's still pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's a whole other aspect of Joe that uh, I found so yeah. fascinating. We could certainly have a whole podcast about, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I started playing music literally when I was four years old. That's when I got my first drum set from my mm. parents for Christmas. And uh, so music and um, photography and things have been a big part of my life for a long time. Writing actually, that's mm. one of the first careers I wanted to have when I was a little kid. So, um, so art is kind of my background. And um, for me, it was very interesting to explore um, how other people in other fields access the same things that I tried to access through my mm. art throughout my life. Yeah. And, and I can interject, maybe I could interject something really quickly. Um, I yeah, just wanted to say do. that one thing we're learning, especially because we're, the science we do is so abstract. We're finding that art is very helpful in, in helping us connect to the public. And so mm. a lot of our, like a lot of these big experiments and so forth have resident artists, residents, and uh, this that is something right? that's becoming more and co more common. And um, it draws people in, they can create imagery that is inspired by our work that actually draws people in and gets them interested in the science. And then we talk to them about the science. Otherwise it's quite difficult as you probably could gather from what I was telling you before. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a really interesting point, Joe, because actually the, um, the moderator of our Q and a at the theatrical premiere of echoes of the invisible was Dan goods from NASA's jet propulsion laboratory. And he has the most unique job potentially there, which is he, he has no background in science at all. Uh, but he has a background as an artist and NASA hired him to try to convey to the public or communicate to the public what they're doing through art. And um, what happened in the process is they realized that these art exhibitions or art um, projects would actually help the scientists themselves think through their own thinking, as they like to say. So it's they kind do. of a, a two-way dialogue, which is really beautiful that, that NASA is willing to um, embrace that. Wow. It, it, and my art training actually has helped me to communicate. Um, for instance, in the, announcing the, the Higgs boson discovery, we had, we had a very strong signal, but it was across many, many separate analyses that in each one you could see nothing. Right. And so um, I worked with the team and we figured out a way to combine them. And you, you could show a very beautiful spectral peak where the Higgs is. And I remember the competing experiment uh, gave me a lot of flack about that initially because they, they said, oh, but you're cheating. But, but actually it was a way of really visibly seeing why this was such a strong si signal. And then they later also did the same thing. But I, I'd never had the, made the connection earlier, but over time I realized it's that kind of thing that an artist does, you know, tries to visualize the, what's really hard to visualize. And um, that really has played a role in my own uh, research. Wow. This is all so cool. I mean, uh, there's hope for aspiring artists everywhere. I'm going to have to have a chat with my daughter because she, uh, she dropped art because she's moving into science and didn't think she could do both. But I think uh, we've just shown that maybe she can. So um, we shall see. Um, I By think the way, we're... could I interject something real quick? Yeah, please do. Uh, just while we're on this topic, it, one of the most interesting books I read during my research for Echoes of the Invisible was a yeah. book by Lorraine Dastin and Peter Gallison called Objectivity, hmm. which ties into this question about the relationship between artists and scientists, because um, she kind of goes back, if I recall, to the 1600s and then carries the history through to the present day, where 
back in the 1600s, the relationship between artists and scientists were very, very intimate. Um, scientists mm. depended on artists to render, basically to sift through all the variation of detail in whatever data they were studying to get to the essence of it or the archetype behind the mess of all the data um, to capture something in a singular image or a small series of images to convey to people what they were doing or to even show proof of their experiments. And then when photography came about, she says that's when things started to kind of split between artists mm -hmm. and scientists where suddenly instead of truth being in the essence behind all the data, photography showed that actually truth is on, on some level in the variations in the data, not in the essence behind it. We need to look into the, the messy details of everything and find the truth in there somewhere. Um, I, I didn't explain this very well. She articulate, articulates it so much better, but the point is it's kind of nice to see that we're coming to a point in history now where the sciences and the arts are sort of talking to each other again um, in, a, in a, a way that's mutually helpful to both. That's uh, that's thanks for that. Well, I'm sure we can put a link to that uh, book in the show notes, and uh, I'll have to have to give I'll that. That's how you get it. Yeah, I'm gonna definitely be looking that up, uh, getting it on the Kindle. Um, I think um, um, as I've I think we mentioned at the very beginning before even we started this uh, on a uh, subject that's a film that's all about timelessness. It's hard, it's hard for me to put a time end on this but uh uh i we have already come close to being a, an hour and it's been a really enjoyed it i do do maybe a few little questions before we go though uh, a few extra ones i mean um uh i mean julia i mean usually i ask uh, people what's next for for you all i mean julia what's uh uh how long how long till uh, paul makes it to tierra del fuego and uh, is he? He has a dream of getting all of his worker uh, co-walkers or co-trekkers, uh, if you will, to join him. Is that is that something that's actually in the works? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And it's not just anybody <clears throat> who's walked with him, but anyone who wants to join. I hope all of you are there. I hope everyone who's in Steve's film is there. Um, I hope, as Joe said, to, to meet them at some point before then. Um, but yeah, when he's taking the final steps of the journey, basically anyone um, wants to and has the capacity and ability to come join is welcome. Um, and that, I like that question a lot because the answer is, you know, I can say if we're about in terms of mileage halfway through, then there's about seven more years probably on the trail. But um, we don't know. And it's really a luxury and a, a great thing to not know. And the nature of walking is unpredictable. So that could change. And again, that's part of the story. Um, but, you know, to give you my, my best estimate at this point, it would be about seven years. Yeah. And okay. uh, I, I like hearing about Joe's work because, and Steve's work, um, making the film took a little over a decade and probably mm. a lot more than that in terms of what you were doing before then, Steve to bring you to there to that point where you wanted to start making it and Joe what you described doing in 50 years and the fact that it took you know 50 years to me that sounds really really fast um you know the technology is changing in real time and so the more is becoming possible it's all the same uh it includes the, that includes sort of the walk and, and how the walk is going to change as technology changes and what becomes possible with storytelling and sharing the journey um as Paul continues yeah. 
And okay, well, we look forward to it. And seven years is, given what we've been discussing, is uh, not even a blink of an eye. Yeah, it's not even, <laughs> not even. Yeah, um, very much. And and Joe, so uh, what does a uh, someone do after discovering the God particle? But the the sci- scientists I know don't ever <laughs> stop being scientists, so they keep going till. That's right. So so what are you what are you working on or what? So I'm working. I'm working on. Uh, uh, two well three things but two in sciences one is um we're continuing to study the higgs as we produce it mm. um but i'm, I'm working on uh, developing a new experiment to look for dark matter dark matter is the next right. big quest in particle physics and uh, it's a very it's a beautiful experiment i think it has a very good chance of discovery um we're looking in a very obvious place which is at the mass where all the known particles that have stability over the time scales of the universe exist no mm. one's ever looked there before because it's so difficult but you know we're getting used to doing difficult things um and i just need a little bit of money uh 30 30 million if, you, if you've got that i'll be uh, on my way um the department of energy is supporting us we'll, we'll get okay. it done um then then also I've, I've started a project in 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 the sustainability space that i was talking about okay. along the lines that i was discussing and hoping to get lots of different academic fields to work together um, and um, that's still quite early. Uh, and then okay. I'm also back into painting, actually. Oh, lovely. And, um, I've returned to painting. The, the pandemic, I normally travel 150,000 miles a year or something because I have to go all over the place. And the pandemic grounded me and uh, gave me some time. So I got back into art. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. And and I I nearly I nearly asked you about dark matter earlier, and it's a whole another not just podcast but several episodes I think. But can you succinctly tell us is this does dark matter have the, is that a big game changer? I mean I, I get the feeling from what I'm hearing about it as someone who's a complete lay person um, that it's it it seem it has this possibility to kind of turn some scientific. Uh, theories on their head or is that a bit too simplistic yes no no the dark matter the, the thing is that we have a we have a very good model for everything we see in terms of the fabric space time yeah. and dark matter doesn't appear in that model at the moment we don't know quite what it is at all uh, we have some we had some really good good candidates for it some beautiful theories that have just not panned out but we know it's there. We know that it created the structure of the universe. It, we call I call it, uh, I've heard others call it the scaffolding of the universe. It's what mm. brought the star, brought the material together that created galaxies. Um, we know it's in our room. It's passing through us right now. And yet we, we've never had a direct interaction with it. We just know from its gravitational effects that it's there. And we need to understand what it is because it could help us make the next step in really understanding what the universe is about. Mm. Um, and, and it could be crucial to that. It's one of the three pathways we're following. The other is to really understand more details about the Higgs boson. And the mm. third is to understand neutrinos. Neutrinos mm. turned out to be much more interesting and complex than we expected and may help us understand why the universe is made of matter and not antimatter, for example. Mm. So these are the fundamental questions we're after we have. Okay, so Steve, try to follow that up. Uh, what is uh, <laughs> what's next for you? Uh, you got another project that's going to take seven to ten years to uh, see that make it to the big screen, or probably your friends are inevitably. Not, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, yeah, I, it's funny. I set out on every project uh, saying I'm, I'm never going to spend that long on a project again, but, but then, you know, I also have to remind myself that some things have to bake in the oven that long for them to mm. convey or express themselves properly. So I'm going to try not to be too judgmental from the outset, but mm. I am working on several new films um, kind of all at the same time. And actually, I have to be a little bit secretive about them, I'm afraid, not to be dramatic, but um, when they're released, you'll understand why, yeah. uh, just due to the nature of them. But uh, one of them has to do with um, how and when violence is justified. Uh, another has mm. to do with um, completely rethinking what technology even is in the first place to see if yeah. we can completely scrap our whole paradigm we're living in and start over. <laughs> Mm. And uh, it involves people who are um, very central in the development of the technology of the last 40, 50 years. And wow. then the third is actually about child consciousness. I'm really interested in um, finding a way to tell a story from the point of view of a child before it learns language um, to sort of like hopefully wow. reawaken in adults the experience we all had before we learned language when um, things weren't so tied to cultural concepts that are embedded in language where we see the world a little little differently and perhaps a little more openly, but none of us can remember because our brains weren't developed enough to store those memories, so. Wow. Well, well I look forward to seeing those whenever they do see the light of day and anything else that you've not been able to announce. Uh, all filmmakers do this. They always say they, they can't say anything about it. It's, it's, uh, but I understand why, because, uh, well, for various reasons. Um, so, um, uh, thank you again so much for, uh, for, for coming onto the, to the podcast. It's uh, been a joy talking to all three of you and, uh, talk a little bit more about this film, which I really he heavily recommend everyone see. Uh, I'm going to watch it again now that I've, now that the password works, Steve. Uh, I think, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, because um, just do it, seeing it, seeing it once. I mean, you know, part of the time, because not to go into my personal life, but I had to listen to just part of it. I wasn't able to watch it while I was, while it was going. And, and that was interesting as well, just to listen to it was uh you know it had you know but that's it, it sounds odd for a film that's just won all you know won awards for cinematography and, and being a work of art but uh but thanks again highly recommend and um just want to th say thank you again to steve elkins uh director cinematographer and editor of um echoes of the invisible julia payne from the out of eden project and particle physicist joe incandela uh, for joining us here at Factual America. It's, it's, it's been a joy having you. And again, the film is uh, on Apple TV Plus, and uh, we'll have some links to other places where you can, can stream it. Um, and uh, actually, by curiosity, when you were out in West Texas, did you come across the 10,000-year uh, the clock while you were out there? Because we had the... Uh, <laughs> We had the Stuart, you know, there's a Stuart Brand doc that was supposed to premiere at the same festival. Yeah, yeah and, about his, um, how he's uh, the, reviving uh, extinct species like the woolly mammoth and reintroducing Yeah, so there was that element of it. But then there's also the, uh, you know, he's, I think, I think it's Bezos is behind it, but uh, he's building yeah. this clock in the side of a mountain in West Texas that uh, is going to chime every thousand years. And it's yeah, it's funny you mention that. Um, there is a whole story behind that. So uh, when I was out filming Linda in West Texas, um, yeah. 
she she mentioned to me i had not heard of the ten thousand year clock before that but she yeah. mentioned to me that in a nearby mountain range they were in the process of building that that clock yeah. and um i actually thought she was exaggerating or something it just sounded too far-fetched <laughs> not that she's prone to exaggeration but yeah. um so i went and researched it a little bit and the more i learned about it the more i realized that story of the clock could easily be a whole component of this film and at one mm. point i actually attempted to make make it in mm. one of the stories of the film. I went out and interviewed uh, some of the people who are making it, uh, including Laura uh, Welcher, who's actually a linguist. I thought that would be interesting to bring a linguist into right, journalists right. and monks and everything else. Um, and one of her jobs is to figure out um, how do we archive things for 10,000 years, 100,000 years, yeah. a million years where they'll still be intact. Like, how do we think that far ahead? Mm. Um, and so she was in charge of thinking of some of the materials that would go into the clock and into a library that they want to have as a part of it. And what books right. would you even put in a library that would yeah. be significant for the next million years. Um, and uh, anyway, it's a, it's a long story, but that yeah. Yeah. completely, it was just too much for this one project. <laughs> That's where it actually did get over the top because <laughs> she was, you know, she was talking about how now they're thinking about having to have libraries of the future in DNA, like not not so much physical libraries because they're too um, uh, they're too easy to destroy. Um, but actually, digital, having digital libraries. as well. What's digital that? as well? I mean, yeah. we we worry we worry about this all the time. We, you know, in science, we're producing tons of data, which we're trying to figure out how to preserve it and in mm -hmm. what form. And it's it's a lot. If it's and it's, if it's digital, it's it, may or may not survive um mm. you have uh you know there's a lot of issues there in just even the impact of cosmic rays on electronics you know they flip a bit from a zero to a one so we have this problem all the time in particle physics because all these particles are zipping through our experiments so all of our electronics is triplicate so we we do majority logic you know because one of the bits could be flipped so you check the other two and you know you vote which whether whenever the whichever way two of them are equal how do you preserve data for millions of years? And 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 I said that in, you had that in the film where I mentioned that the, the, what mm. we're doing may never be repeated because it's taken right. generations to get to where we are. When we stop, who's going to pick this up again and try to go through 100 years of work to reach this point? You know, they're just not going to do it. So what we're what we're studying has to last millennia, and how we're going to keep that information. But a lot of it can be written into texts. Uh, how, how long will the text last? You know, maybe DNA is the answer. It's interesting. Yeah, sounds a little uh, bit like an Ursula K. Le Guin novel, though. I don't. <laughs> Eternal preservation <laughs> in DNA sounds like a sticky question. At, at least a few podcast episodes. Yeah, there's um, a few there, yeah. Joe, I would not want to be the person in charge of uh, <laughs> making sure that the eternal preservation at CERN is uh, up and running. And that's that's seriously some catastrophic data loss possibility. Well, and one, re one reason I thought of this 10,000-year uh, clock is just that th some people that I imagine you might even be talking to about your technology project are also behind that uh, that project as well, because Stuart Brand's got connections to the, um, well, some of the founders of, you know, Apple and other places. So um, um, anyway... Um, yeah. I, I said thank you before. I'll say thank you again. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a it's been a thrill having you on. Um, and and yeah, uh, you. Thank yes, you, uh, take care. It's uh, and um, pleasure meeting you. And um, 
yeah, look forward to hearing more about everything that we've we've discussed and all the stuff going on in, in the future. So, um, Absolutely. Um, yeah. all right, take care. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank, Thank you, Joe. All right, see you. Thank ya. you for having us on. Yeah, thank you, Julia and Joe, for joining us too. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's nice meeting you, Julia you and Matthew. Uh, nice you meeting too, you. Joe and take care. So I just want to give another big thank you to Steve Elkins, the director, cinematographer, and editor of Echoes of the Invisible, uh, to Julia Payne from the Out of Eden Project, and to particle physicist Joe Incandela. Um, also want to give a shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio, just outside of York, England, Eskrick to be more precise. And uh, congratulations especially to Sam and his better half Poppy on the birth of their son, Halen. Uh, big thanks to Nevena Paunovic, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Steve, Julia, and Joe onto the show. And finally, big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.